people always want to know, like, how much should I do? Tell me what should I do? What kind of exercise should I do? And the answer is there is no one dose. It depends on who you are. It depends on whether you're male or female or old or young and you live in a city or you live in the country. And if you're worried about osteoporosis or whatever, there's no one dose and it can, never can be. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Statt, the director of Cambridge Forum. And today we're delighted to be having an upbeat conversation with an evolutionary biologist, Harvard professor Dan Lieberman, whose latest book is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Well, Mark Twain apparently quipped that he got all the exercise he needed from attending funerals of his friends who did exercise. So we all know that's a bit of a stretch because people like Professor Lieberman have been looking at this topic for decades and they've learned a thing or two along the way. For one thing, love it or hate it, we all have to confront the prospect that we have to do things more physically in order to stay healthy. So welcome, Dan. Thank you. You are going to tell us a few myths, 12 in fact, myths about exercising to help us dispel some of the nonsense. So the book is a natural history of exercise. And the first part of the book is about inactivity because inactivity is as important as activity. I mean, you can't exercise all day long. So we need to understand inactivity. And really the first myth, the most important myth of the book is, is really that we evolved to exercise. And there's this idea out there, which I call the myth of the athletic savage that our, you know, our ancestors used to be incredible athletes and they would you know, get out of bed and just like run an ultra marathon just for the heck of it. But it turns out that if we look at what hunter-gatherers really do, they're, they're kind of moderately active, but not crazy. So the average hunter-gatherer in Africa, for example, is doing moderate to vigorous activity only two and a quarter hours a day. They actually sit about, about nine to 10 hours a day as much as most Westerners. And they don't do exercise. They're only physically active when it's necessary or fun. So they'll, they'll be active when, when they're hunting or when they're digging up food. They'll be active when they're dancing or playing, but otherwise they sit around just like we do. The second myth, which is related to that first myth, is that it's, it's unnatural to be lazy. You know, people who don't exercise, we call them lazy. But actually, from an evolutionary perspective, um, that doesn't make a lot of sense because, you know, the, the basic equation of life is energy in and babies out, right? That's basically what we're here for, as far as natural selection is concerned about. And you can only spend energy on five things. You can spend it on growing your body, maintaining it. You can spend it on storing fat, which, of course, you can use back for other purposes. Spend it on reproduction or moving around, being physically active. And ultimately all that natural selection cares about is reproduction. So if you spend less energy on physical activity, it means you can spend more energy on all these other functions, especially reproduction. And so that's why all animals, humans are no exception, have deep and basic instincts not to waste energy when it isn't, when it isn't beneficial because they'll be selected against. Another myth is that somehow those of us who sit much of the day are somehow intrinsically abnormal and, and that sitting is the new smoking and that you know we should stop sitting and, and your know, chairs are out to kill us and all that sort of stuff. But if you actually go as I do and visit people in different parts of the world, you'll find that they sit just as much as us. So the Hadza in Tanzania, for example, that hunter-gatherer group that's been studied enormously, is, you know, when you walk into camp, this is what you see, everybody's sitting, right? Um, they turn out, they sit nine to 10 hours a day and Americans sit between about nine and 12 hours a day. Of course, it varies on your age and sex and whether you're President of the United States or whatever, but um, but we you know we sit a lot, right? And it turns out that it's not so much how much you sit; it's really how you sit. So there are more and better ways of sitting, and also really it's also what you're what you're doing when you're not not at work, right? So it's leisure time physical activity 
that uh, physical inactivity or sitting that's most in, uh, correlated with, with bad health outcomes. In other words, if you sit all day at work and then you go home and sit at night and in, in the morning and et cetera, when you're not at work, then you're in trouble because then you're not exercising. Another myth is that we need eight hours of sleep. And it turns out that, that um, uh, that's just not true. Um, the idea that you know electricity and clocks and iPhones and television have all ruined our sleep is just a, another myth. It turns out that if you go to populations where there's no electricity whatsoever and there's no, there's no internet, there's no cell phones and there's no nothing, uh, that uh, that's electric, it uh, turns out they sleep between 5.7 and 7.1 hours a night. And in fact, if you look within the United States and other populations like that, you look at the ratio of heart disease or other illnesses relative to how much sleep you get, it turns out that seven hours is, turns out to be better for most people than eight hours. Of course, there's a variation around that mean. So this idea of eight hours is just completely made up. And, and, we, and yet we stress people out because we tell them, if you don't get eight hours, you're not getting enough sleep. And so then people get stressed about it. And of course, what does stress do? It prevents you from sleeping in the first place because cortisol, which is elevated by stress, is the enemy of sleep. So part two of the book is about speed and strength. And, and, and again, there's tons of myths and I just picked a few. So one of them is that normal humans trade off speed for endurance. So, and this is, I guess, a perfect example of how if we focus too much on elite athletes, we end up getting a very warped view. So it's true. If you look at the world's fastest marathoner, this is Elliot Kipchoge. He's, he's run, uh, he actually ran a sub two hour marathon, but kind of was cheating because he had, you know, he was running behind a car, et cetera. But here's his fastest actual world record time. And he's running 5.9 meters a second. So he's running 440 miles basically uh, for 26 miles. He's way slower than Usain Bolt, who's the world's fastest sprinter still. He's running 10.4 meters a second. So he can run 10 meters. And, but you know, if, and, if, and if you had Bolt run a marathon at that speed and, and, and Kipchoge run 100 meters, Kipchoge would have a pathetic 1650-700 meter dash and Bolt would be able to run a marathon a little bit over an hour, right? But it turns out that those guys aren't really very useful for the rest of us, right? Um, um, uh, how many people do you know who can run a four minute mile or four and a half minute mile? It's, you know, it, let alone do it for 20, 26 miles, right? And it turns out that for the rest of us, um, if you actually do some speed occasionally, it also builds up your endurance. And that's why high intensity interval training, which is what you occasionally kind of do bursts of really high intensity, actually are good both not only for your speed, but also for your endurance. Another myth is that we evolved to be super strong. So we have this idea, someone comes from CrossFit and who knows where else, um, that, that our ancestors were like, you know, jacked up like Arnold, you know, like, like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it's not true at all. Uh, they were endurance athletes. And in fact, muscles are really expensive tissue. Um, and so it turns out if you actually look at hunter-gatherers here in red compared to, this is a group of, this is a, a people in the UK, hunter-gatherers are, you know, they're about the 75th percentile of, of people in, in England. So they're, 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 they're strong-ish, but they're not super strong. But the important thing is that whereas uh, strength really declines rapidly in, in the UK and uh, other Western countries, it declines at a much slower rate among hunter-gatherers. And that's because people continue to, to use their bodies as they get older. So they, 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 don't, um, they don't get uh, muscle wasting as much as Americans do. Another myth is that sports are exercise. That can sometimes be the, the case, but if you think about the sports that we value the most, like the ones in the Olympic uh, motto, you know, faster, higher, stronger, those tend to be uh, activities that are more important for combat, right? A lot of the sports, a lot, a lot of things that we do in sports are, you know, sprinting and fighting and throwing and kicking and punching, right? Um, and we, we love these sports, but uh, the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of American kids and who play sports actually spend most of the time on the bench. Certainly it was my experience when I was a kid. 
Um, and I think that we evolve sports for other reasons. It teaches skills, it does teach some physical capacities, but it's also important for all kinds of social reasons. And then the book goes into that in great detail and I, I won't tell you, but it has to do with, it has to do with uh, uh, reactive versus proactive aggression. Mm. Part, part three of the book, I talk about endurance. Um, and, um, and you know the most basic fundamental physical activity that humans do is walking. It's the most, it's what we evolved to do. And the typical hunter-gatherers walk six miles a day. If they're women, men walk about nine miles a day. It's, 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 and often they're carrying things when they're walking. And, and yet we've kind of, because we, we think about exercise always with this view of weight, we often kind of denigrate the relevance of just basic physical activity because it's not very useful uh, for, for weight loss. And so, so for example, keep reading these days about how, you know, that exercise is useless for losing weight. And that's actually also not true. So it's true that if you wanna lose weight um, rapidly, dieting is the best thing. If you walk a mile, you'll burn about 50 calories. Whereas if you have a, you know, a Gatorade or a Lucozade or some French fries, you'll, you'll get about 365 calories. So you're much better off not eating the fries or not drinking the, the Gatorade than, than, than walking a mile. But the thing is that we're often using very, very limited to goalposts to evaluate walking, right? So the, the standard recommendation for physical activity is 150 minutes a week, which is 21 minutes a day, which is really not very much, right? So if you do that for a month, which is why, how, how long many experiments last, you might lose like half a pound. And if you do it for a year, you might lose six pounds, right? So that's not a lot. And if you're trying to lose 50 pounds, which is what your average American is trying to lose, you know, that's not all that effective way to lose weight. But if you do just double that to 300 minutes a week, so that's 40 minutes a day, you can actually lose 12 pounds a year. Um, and there's plenty of experiments which show that. And that's actually, so if you do that for a few years, you actually very slowly, gradually, in a very healthy way, lose a fair amount of weight. The other thing is that we also forget that the big issue with weight is not so much losing it, it's also, is not gaining it, right? It's preventing weight gain in the first place, or just as importantly, a lot of diets fail because people lose the weight and then they regain the weight. Like 90% of diets, um, uh, people go through these yo-yo diets. And, and many studies have shown that people who diet and exercise, as opposed to just diet, don't lose that much weight. But once they finish the diet, those who continue to exercise keep the weight off. This is a study by the way, in Boston policemen, versus those who don't exercise gain the weight back. And so it shows that really what matters the most about exercise is not so much weight loss, though it helps with a little bit of extra weight loss, it's preventing the weight gain or weight regain. So if walking is the basic fundamental form of, of, of sort of moderate physical activity, running is the basic form of vigorous activity that we have all to do. We've been doing it for millions of years and people are also very exercised or they're scared about running. And the most common phrase you hear is that running is bad for your knees. And, and it's true that, that knees are the most common site of injury, but I think that's partly because a lot of people don't learn, know how to run properly um, and that there's good ways to run and bad ways to run. And, and I think if we teach people how to run properly, um, um, they can avoid some of the knee injuries, but also the idea that it causes arthritis, which is a, because a lot of knee injuries you can recover from, arthritis you can't recover from, but it turns out that there's no evidence. In fact, there's actually counterfactual evidence about running causing arthritis. Like the evidence is that running actually is good for your, for your knees and actually helps you prevent arthritis. But that's just a myth that's just out there over and over again, said over and over again. And yet there are randomized controlled experiments longitudinal experiments, gold standard experiments, which show that that's not the case. The idea that it's normal to be less active as we age is just not true. Um, you know, today people retire, but in the past retirement wasn't an option. In fact, grandmothers who are post-reproductive are actually working as hard if not harder than the mothers, right? And that, of course, that physical activity helps keep them, keeps them young.
And so the final section of the book is about how you apply all this to health. And again, there are plenty of myths. And one of the myths, uh, I think maybe a very important myth is that, is that just telling people to exercise um, or shaming them or blaming them or medicalizing or commercializing it uh, uh, works. And the answer is that's just not true, right? We know that the proof is in the pudding that you know, only about 20% of Americans actually get enough physical activity and most Americans don't even exercise at all. And I argue that we should take an evolutionary anthropological approach and, and remember that really we evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only, when it was necessary and when it was fun and social. So if that little voice in your head tells you you don't wanna go for a run in the morning or go to the gym or whatever, there's nothing wrong with you. That voice is normal. Everybody faces that little voice. It's just that you need to find a way. We need to find in this modern world a way to overcome that. And I think the way to do that is to make, is to treat education, ex exercise much the way we treat it, treat education, which is also a modern thing. Right? Let's make it fun, make it necessary, make it social. And I have ideas in the book about how to do that. Another myth is that there's an optimal dose and optimal types. People, people always wanna know like, how much should I do? Tell me what should I do? What kind of exercise should I do? And the answer is there is no one dose. It depends on who you are. It depends on whether you're male or female or old or young and you live in a city or you live in the country. And if you're worried about Alzheimer's or if you're worried about heart disease or if you're worried about osteoporosis or whatever, there's no, there's no one dose and there can, never can be. What we do know is that if you just look at a very general uh, outcome, which is, for example, the, your relative risk of dying in a given year. If you exercise, you know, just 60 minutes a week, you can reduce that, that risk by about 30 to 40 percent. If you exercise 150 minutes a week, so that's 21 minutes a day, you reduce that risk by about 50 percent. And as you do more, you can you actually continue to decrease that risk quite considerably, and it eventually tails out. Right. So, you know, there's a certain point. <laughs> there's no benefit to doing more exercise. Right. That gave us this sort of general recommendation that of 150 minutes a week, but that's just an arbitrary point on a graph, right? And it's not gonna be the same for you as it's gonna be for me, as it's gonna be for you know, your, some friend or some relative or some, some whatever, it's, it's different for everybody. And then finally, I think we often mischaracterize exercise as a magic bullet, right? That it's gonna solve all your problems. And I think we're overselling exercise. It is true that exercise has a lot of benefits, but it's not gonna prevent you from dying. We all have to die. And it's not gonna prevent you from dying from all kinds of diseases. However, that said, if you look at the data and you look at the mechanisms, it really is true that exercise lowers the risk of many common diseases. It lowers the risk of obesity, heart disease, respiratory tract infections, including COVID, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, arthritis, osteoporosis, depression, anxiety, the list is very, very long. Um, and the important point is that we didn't evolve to exercise to reduce these diseases. It's rather the absence of regular physical activity that increases our vulnerability to these diseases. And that may seem like a trivial distinction, but actually it's a very important distinction. So in the, in the final analysis, I hope that, you know, cause I'm very aware of the fact that exercise is not a pleasant topic for a lot of folks. <laughs> Uh, and writing a book about exercise is a bit of a challenge. And I hope that the way I've written this book and all the stories and et cetera is both enlightening and entertaining, but, but really more deeply, I wanna change the way people think about exercise in particular in the science of health in general. I think we oversimplify. I think we, we have a very biased attitude. Um, I think it's over commercialized and over medicalized. I think we're very judgmental and, and, and not compassionate. And, and finally, I hope the book is useful in, in that, in that although I don't make any prescriptions, I hope that it gives some, gives some ideas about how to make it fun, how to make it necessary, and how and why it can be healthy and rewarding. And in the final analysis, I really hope that people, I help people enjoy being active without making them exercised about it. <laughs> 
Wow. That was a great fast track through everything there. Thank um, you. You're listening to Cambridge Forum as we continue our discussion with Professor Dan Lieberman, Harvard evolutionary biologist, who's talking about his latest book, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Uh, I'm sure not everybody agrees with everything you said. I'm one of those foolish people that takes glucosamine, for example, because I just think it's helping me and my joints. And um, I would love to run barefoot, but I wouldn't dream of it. I just... Well, I'm not saying that everybody should run barefoot. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't just believe that at all. And that's part of the problem with that. We, we kind of, we, ex we make everything extreme, right? If you want to run barefoot, go ahead. Yeah. So, <laughs> snow today, there's no way I would run barefoot here in the, in the weather. All right, we've got an interesting question here from somebody. Have you addressed the disparity between Americans and other nations with regard to philosophies of exercise in your research? Having helped to run an expat group for mothers of preschoolers when living in Europe, I remember being astonished that exercise was viewed as a self-care luxury by Americans, but as a requirement akin to water and food by Europeans. Well, I mean, I think it's true that the cultural variation in terms of attitudes about exercise are extraordinary. Um, and in the United States, we have a very sort of libertarian approach. Um, one of the sections in the book I actually describe, uh, I went to the Bjorn Borg company in Sweden, where that's the only company I know in the world that actually requires all its employees to exercise. If you don't exercise, you get fired. Um, and so I actually went to their weekly exercise <laughs> regime. Now we think that's outrageous, right? Imagine your boss requiring you to exercise. But in you know, Sweden, which is of course a, a different culture, I mean, it's still a little extreme in Sweden, but it's much less so extreme in, in Sweden, but that's still a Western country, right? But you go to you know, rural Tanzania or parts of you know, other parts of the world where, where, pe where people aren't living lives with machines and, and, and running water and electricity, it's not even a, a question. I mean, nobody has the option not to be physically active. People aren't exercising, they're working. They're working every day. And that's really what we evolved to do is to be very physically active throughout our life, lifelong physical activity in order to survive. And so really exercise is a modern, you can think of it as a modern necessity or you can think of it as a modern luxury. Um, but either way, we didn't evolve bodies that, that thrive, that do as well in the absence of some kind of physical activity. And in the absence of having to do it, we have to choose to do it. And that's really what exercise is. It's choosing to be physical, to do a physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And so, yes, we, I think we should do, we need to do much more to, for example, require kids to exercise in school. I mean, they're, those, they're paying a huge price for not getting enough physical activity when they're young. I think that's very interesting um, that um, Shannon Keith raised this question because um, I remember when I visited Iceland that um, I got invited to go to the swimming pool as a social event. Everybody goes at least once or twice a week with all their friends. Yeah. So you chat, you sit, you swim. I mean, I've never heard anyone invite somebody as a social event uh, to go to the swimming pool here. <clears throat> I'm not talking about summertime. I'm talking about in the cold. <laughs> well, there are. I mean, I know there's a group here um, at Harvard of, of senior swimmers and they meet several mornings a week and they, they oh, swim together. So. <clears throat> this is much less, uh, this was much less earnest. Sure. It was, but, you know, but chat. We can, but, but we can and should <clears throat> do more of that. I mean, you know, like we have, a, you know, running groups or walking groups or whatever. I mean, we, you know, those, those kinds of social environments make it so much more I mean, they, first of all, they obligate you to go, right? So, this, so, so if, you're, if, you're, if your friends are expecting you, you really kind of need to show up. And then mm -hmm. secondly, you get support for doing what you're doing, right? You get, you get feedback, you get some positive reinforcement <laughs> because 
because frankly, you know, you can also sit in your in your on your couch and, and watch television or read a book and maybe enjoy yourself as much, but you might not get that positive feedback. So we've got a few more questions in here. So one is, um, uh, what if MBTA buses stopped every three blocks instead of every block? Would the forced exercise be a good public health measure? Well, I mean, it, it might be. Of course, there are some people who 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 uh, who are disabled, and it would not be tough. It would be tough on them. I think we need to be we need to be compassionate about people who have. Um, uh, disabilities, you know, I'm not a fan of, of forcing people to do stuff, but if we can help people, you know, they give them incentives to get off the bus a little bit early to walk a little bit farther, that would be good. Uh, maybe remind people, say, hey, if you have some extra time, why don't you get off a stop early? That might be a, another way of, of, of accomplishing that. Maybe you can go to the next question. So there's a question, how should a society promote health and fitness to overcome widespread obesity and activity? During this pandemic, are children losing out on organized physical education and sports? Can we recover from can we recover from the setback? Great question. So I've been actually involved in a in a in a worldwide study where they're trying to we're trying to figure out just how much the lockdown has affected physical activity levels. And the answer seems to be that um, of course it's different from country to country, but on the whole, there's been a decrease in physical activity overall. Um, and as you might expect, that's been very um, it's very, uh, very much patterned based on, in, on social inequality. So people who are wealthy and have gyms in their basements or, or access to resources are getting more physical activity. People who are already more physically active have been actually getting plenty of physical activity, but people who are, who are disinclined towards physical activity or don't have access to resources are getting a lot less. And, and, the, and, and yes, that's gonna have a, a long-term effect. That's where it's gonna take us years to see what its effects are. And, and I think there should, needs to be much more public messaging um, and much more effort on the part of organizations from every level, from universities and schools to, to, to other sort of government organizations, et cetera, to try to help people uh, be physically active when we're also being so isolated and, and, and you know, can't do all the things that we normally do because most exercise, most physical activity people get is not exercise. It's like you know, walking to, to work or you know, climbing this. I mean, I, I, you know, some, some of well, my, my, my iPhone, right? I, I have, my iPhone keeps track of my steps and my daily step count has decreased by about 50% um, since the pandemic. I'm still going out running, um, but, all, but all the non-running, I'm, I'm getting a lot less, a lot less exercise because I, I can't go anywhere. And, and this is a big, big issue. And I think we, we don't, we're not, we were so worried about the, you know, the immediate infectious disease issue, right? We're not, there's no attention being paid or at least very little attention being paid to the, all the other effects, including the mental health effects as well. Who would ever have anticipated the massive um, upswing in Peloton sales? I right. mean, stationary bicycles were very uncool 12 months ago. You but know, Pelotons are expensive, people. right? I mean, who very, I very. Mean, not, most people can't afford a Peloton. Uh, Waitlist for that, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's, you know, that's for the, that's for the, that's, I mean, this, this pandemic, this epidemic has, has really, dialed up the inequalities that we've all been aware of, but it's just, and, and physical activity is just, is just one of them. That's true, that's true. Uh, there's a question. Uh, I keep reading not just recommendations, but studies that claim that their results show that eight or eight to nine hours of sleep are correlated with better health outcomes. Are these all wrong? And the answer is, I, I believe so. I mean, the, the, you can, in the book I cite, quite a few studies. The, the most famous one is by a guy named Kripke, um, but these are based on thousands of, in, uh, hundreds of thousands of individuals. Um, yeah, find me the studies that, that show that eight hours is, is correlated with better outcomes. I'd be curious, but, um, but looking at the literature, the most of the studies I've seen 
you know, there's a U-shaped curve and the bottom of the U-shaped curve is around seven. Um, so uh, we're often told that eight hours is better, but I'm, I don't see a lot of evidence to support that. And, you know, I sent this chapter, I'm not a sleep expert, but I sent it to several sleep experts and, and they, um, they said I was on uh, target. They did not disagree with my, my, uh, my reading of the literature. In the book, you talk about the Hadza in Tasmania, a group that you've spent time with. And you say there the grandmothers forage and dig five to six hours a day and they walked twice as fast as you. So you didn't have to have a Fitbit on if you were there. Um, is it because their lives depend upon this and there aren't any rest homes that you, you, you either stay active or you, you're left behind? Is it that kind of thing or not? Yeah, I mean, these are, these are hunter-gatherers. They still, every day they go out to get the food that they're gonna eat. They don't grow food. And this is until 600 generations ago, all humans were like that. And um, um, so you, you, know, you can't retire if you're a hunter-gatherer. And for that matter, subsistence farmers don't get to retire either. It's yeah, yeah, re the, the concept of retirement and you know, no longer being physically active as you get older is, a, is an extremely recent idea um, that only is possible in, 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 in you know, places like America and Sweden and you know, the list, you know, France and whatever, but it's, it's not, it, it wasn't true in, for anybody until recently. So basically you have to move to eat is what you're saying in those places. If you don't move, you yeah. don't follow. You... I mean, in, until the invention of, I mean, look, just think about like this morning when I took a shower, right? I just turned a faucet and out came hot water until recently, even in, even in the early industrial revolution, if I wanted a shower, I'd have to go and fetch it from the neighborhood pump. And then if I wanted to heat it up, I'd have to get firewood and heat it up. You know, I mean, we just take all of these incredible mm. comforts for, for granted, but but until recently, even the simplest thing like washing took a lot of energy and, and effort. I mean, uh, you know, just when I want to when I want to have a cup of tea, I just press a button. You know, um, um, uh, when I you know the foods are, are available to me in the supermarket, I don't have to do anything. I, I don't even have to carry them because there's a cart in the supermarket. I just I don't even have to I don't have to carry anything. Um, uh, we we lived lives where we have removed the necessity of doing physical activity for almost everything. I could even brush my teeth without even having to go with an electric true. toothbrush. I mean, it's, it's, the list goes on. You talk about this thing called cellular senescence, um, which is when you deteriorate, the function deteriorates in the cell and how this can be offset or slowed. And there's some promising research. I think corals and lobsters don't actually exhibit this, uh, which is kind of amazing. So what, what can we learn from this, if anything? It turns out that a lot of the mechanisms that prevent senescence, our cells from ceasing to function, are affected by physical activity. And there are many, many different mechanisms and the list is too long to get into right now. But for example, you know, physical activity helps repair DNA that gets damaged as we age. Uh, so physical activity activates enzymes that are involved in DNA repair, which is one of the reasons why Physical activity may be important in, in helping prevent cancer. Our uh, cells get proteins get glycated, so they get they get heated up and 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 kind of you know, attached. Sugar is attached to them. Proteins denature. I mean, there's a long, long, long list of of very kind of complex processes, and these happen as we age. But the thing is that uh, we don't normally do much about them unless our bodies are stimulated to repair. And it looks like physical activity is an important stimulus that turns on a lot of those repair and maintenance mm -hmm. mechanisms. 
which is why you know, the, it's the stress that actually activates the repair and mechanism response. And, and since we never evolved not to engage in these kinds of stresses, we never evolved to turn them on in the absence of physical activity. I'd like to thank everyone out there for listening to today's Cambridge Forum with Professor Dan Lieberman, Harvard evolutionary biologist, author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Thank you. Cambridge Forum is made possible by the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, and you. So please don't forget to donate. You can go to the website, www.cambridgeforum.org, where you can find a podcast of this and all the other forums we've made this year, as well as details of future programmes. So let me thank all the listeners and the viewers and wish everyone a very happy, healthy New Year. Thank you.